decade is Tops for Pops. Hi, welcome to episode two of Which Decade is Tops for Pops? A podcast that sets up wholly arbitrary and spurious comparisons between otherwise completely unassociated pieces of music in order to ascertain an underlying deeper truth. Or, in plainer language, a podcast where we talk about six pop records and you vote for them. Now, before we go any further, let me explain how the voting works. When you've listened to the six pop records in this episode, and when you've heard what we have to say about them, then you need to rank the records in order of preference. When you've done that, you can submit your votes to us in one of three ways, by email, via Twitter, or via Facebook. You'll find all the details of how to do that on the show info that's attached to this episode. But I do need to stress, you must send us your top three in descending order of preference and also your least favourite. Incomplete ballots, tied positions or any other deviations from the process will be treated as spoiled ballots and will not be counted. When sending your votes in, I would also really welcome, we would all really welcome it, if you could tell us a little bit about what you think about some of the records. And we will read some of the best ones out in the next episode, assuming we get them, thereby building listener engagement. So, my name is Mike Atkinson, and I am joined, as always, by Nick Parkhouse. Hello. And by DJ Trev. Hello there. Hi. Now, as the voting for the singles in episode one closed about an hour and a half ago, Nick and Trev do not yet know the results, which I am about to reveal to you now. Now, are you excited or do you think it's a foregone conclusion? I think it was a really mixed bag last time, so this could go anywhere. I'm waiting to see how many Union J fans you had chip in. We had one Union J fan who, sadly, despite voting for Union J as their favourite, only voted for one other record and said, well, I don't know the others. I replied and said, I'm really sorry, we can't take your vote. Have a listen. Gave them the link to the playlist. You know, you you may surprise us, but that's where their commitment to Union J kind of falters. Fair play. I mean, that's 50% of the Union J fan club have got in touch in the first place. I just take that as a solid win. Don't start. You don't start riling them up again. (laughs) Clearly didn't rile them hard enough, did I? Come on, Union J, where are you? Yeah, troll harder, Trev. So I'm going to read you the results in reverse order. In last position, it is Beautiful Life by Union J. That means that minus one point is awarded to the 2010s. In fifth place, Hero by Mariah Carey. That means no points at all are awarded to the 1990s. Uh, Mariah Carey was actually an early leader, but gradually got knocked back further and further until she ended up in fifth position. And in fourth position, Sugar and Spice from The Searchers, that means also that no points are awarded to the 1960s. Now we go into our top three, and these positions do earn points for our decades. So in third place, Slade with My Friend Stan. That earns one point for the 1970s. In second place, and I have to say, I am personally delighted by this. Second place, State of Mind by Holly Valance earns two points for the noughties. But a very clear and unambiguous winner. First place, Hey You, the Rocksteady Crew by the Rocksteady Crew, full three points to the 1980s. So as we start episode two, the 1980s are the decade to beat. It's theirs to lose. 
Wow. I'm happy with those results. Um, Mariah Carey was the most volatile. It tended to be first or last yeah. with Mariah. And I think ultimately a lot of them cancelled each other out, whereas the searchers were just in the meh zone. Searchers generally didn't get many votes from anybody at all, one way or the other. Right, let's move on to the songs we're going to be talking about in episode two. As before, we use the randomizer to give us two numbers. So the randomizer gave us a year suffix of eight and a chart position of six. That means we will be looking at the records that are at number six in the UK singles chart today, date of recording, 16th of November, in 1968, 1978, all the way through to 2018. If you're new to this podcast, you may not realise we don't actually play copyrighted music on this podcast, we just talk. But you are invited to listen along, pause the podcast, play the tunes, and if you want an easy way to do that without unduly troubling your Googling fingers you will find links to a YouTube playlist and the Spotify playlist in the show info for this episode. So it's as easy as we can make it. So here we go with our first single from... The 60s! Which is All Along the Watchtower by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. This was the fourth of five top ten hits that Jimi Hendrix enjoyed between 1967 and 1970, and it peaked at number five. He was always more of an albums artist. In total, he's had 13 top ten albums over the years, obviously quite a lot of those being posthumous compilations. All Along the Watchtower is a track from his double LP Electric Ladyland, which had come out in December of 1968, peaked at number six, but has never really fully gone away from the album chart since. The last time it was in the album charts was as recently as 2018. All Along the Watchtower is his most popular song on Spotify. It's got 564 million streams. Uh, it was originally recorded by Bob Dylan on his 1967 album, John Wesley Harding, and the Hendrix cover came quite shortly thereafter. Dylan heard the Hendrix version and he liked it so much that from that point on, he used the Hendrix version as the basis for his future live performances. And of all the songs that Bob Dylan has played live over the years, he has played All Along the Watchtower more often than any other song. It's had over 2,250 performances. There have been many covers over the years. I've listened to all the main covers. We've had XTC, U2, Paul Weller, Eddie Vedder out of Pearl Jam, Brian Ferry. Uh, we've had somebody called Beer McCrary on the soundtrack of Battlestar Galactica Season 3. And we have another hit single version. In 2012, Devlin and Ed Sheeran took their version of All Along the Watchtower to number seven. Nick, what do you make of All Along the Watchtower? It's interesting that you mentioned the cover versions because my first exposure to this was on Rattle and Hum, I think, the U2 album, 1988, uh, the live album where they covered a few uh, kind of classic things. And I think that was the first time I came across uh, All Along the Watchtower. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know whether it's a Bob Dylan thing specifically, but he does have a couple of songs that I think if you ask the general public who wrote All Along the Watchtower or Make You Feel My Love, for example, I think you'd have to ask a lot of people before they would identify Bob Dylan as the songwriter behind those two hits. I mean, clearly it's just you know, uh, Rolling Stone, I think it was in the top 50 greatest songs of all time as recently as last year, I think. So it is clearly one of those absolutely stone cold, will be forever classic singles. Interesting what you say about Bob Dylan as well. I, I think he, in his autobiography, he said, when I sing it, I always feel it's a tribute to him, 
which is a very weird thing to say about your own song. I was trying to think of any other example of a song where someone has covered it and it has become the defining version. Like maybe Hallelujah, the Jeff Buckley was the one I thought of straight away. Always on my mind, maybe uh, has sort of become the one. But about twenty years ago, I went to see Neil Diamond live, and he included in his set "I'm a Believer" and "Red Red Wine," fully acknowledging that uh, on stage that they'd be more famous in their versions by the Monkees and UB40. Yeah, and it's that sort of thing, isn't it? Um, you know, where the, where the co- cover, if you like, becomes the definitive version which i think it kind of undoubtedly has in this instant what would he be doing now i i always interested to think about you know what would john lennon be doing right now if he was still with us would he be on tour with the searchers and herman termits jimmy hendrix do you think would he be recording new music would he have retired 30 years ago I think. i've been thinking about the very same thing today and it could go in one of two directions he could sort of take the eric clapton route and um churn out tastefully smooth adult orientated rock and probably much loved at live aid and and coast along and it would rather dim the memory of the incandescent stuff he did in the 60s or and i actually think this is more likely i think he would probably have stayed at the cutting edge One thing that occurred to me, I reckon he'd have got really interested in African music quite early on. I could totally see him going to Nigeria and collaborating with Fela Kuti and doing interesting things that come, what they call it, Afrocentric kind of thing. And I could also see him being attracted by electronics, much the same way that people like Herbie Hancock kind of got into hip hop. I could imagine Jimi Hendrix doing interesting things with electronics, may have got into jazz funk but we'll never know. Trev, your thoughts? It's just a great track. When this list came up, I was instantly going, oh, at least there's one that I can really enthuse about because I'm forever terrified that it's just going to be a week of, I haven't got a clue about any of these tracks. The way that I relate to music is because I'm a DJ, um, I always sort of think of things, well, do I know it? Am I aware of it? Do I own it? Would I play it? And then, you know, then I get to things like, do I like it? Uh, I was definitely aware of this. Yeah, know it. Uh, do own it. Do like it. But the interesting one is, would I play this? And I can't think that I've ever played this in the types of bars and clubs that I work in. That's not wild. You know, I don't play a great deal of, I guess, classic guitar music. But it's uh, Voodoo Charles, the one that I do play in that case. And having listened to this again for the purpose of this podcast, you know, I might start playing this because it's a it's a really great song. The other criteria I judge records on is whether or not I would discuss this with musos. And this is the type of music you talk to musos about. It is muso music. I didn't know uh, this was a cover until you just told me because I don't like to do my homework. Uh, I know you guys are going to do the hard work uh, and the heavy lifting, and I can just sit there and go, oh, yeah, yeah, of course it's a cover. I had no idea. You've got to love a busker. What can you say about this song? He's, he's a legend who I don't particularly listen to a great deal. I don't have any of his albums. I've got some compilations. When they remastered, that was when I decided it was time to buy, uh, you know, they did a remastered compilation because the version of Voodoo Child that I used to play drifts horribly, goes really quiet. It's almost, you know, when you're at a festival and you're at the back because you like them, but you don't love them. So you've not gone up to the front and then the wind blows and just takes the sound away for a while. It's kind of like that. I, I can't say that I've listened to them loads. I'm not sure, having you know reminded myself how much I like this song, that I'm going to go and listen to him loads. It's not my really kind of music. 
but it is something that whilst I, I'm not passionate about the style of music, I, I can just go, that's a great song. I can I, I almost, it's impossible to be objective about music, but I do feel you can objectively go, yeah, that's a really good tune. But yeah, he's, he's, he is an artist. I don't listen to a great deal. I don't really know a right lot about him. For example, I mean, the singer's really good, but who plays the guitar on this? But fortunately, you've smiled at that because uh, <laughs> I, I am picturing people going, where's this guy, DJ? I never need to go there. There is a remix of All Along the Watchtower done by this guy called The Reflex, who does an awful lot of re-edits of classic tracks. And The Reflex remix of All Along the Watchtower, I have played out. My partner, Kevin, his birthday happened to coincide with my Friday night residency. So I constructed a whole set based of music that I knew he liked. And the remix version of All Along the Watchtower just stretches it out. It makes it rhythmically a little bit more precise, but he doesn't add any whooshy, gimmicky modern bits at all. He only uses the original elements. Well, there's no rap. There's no rap. You get Turbo B out of Snap term turning up and doing a rap over it. Surely that'd <laughs> improve it. That improves pretty much anything, doesn't it? People danced, so I was happy about that. I did own this and I sold it for £3.45, but I didn't buy it. What happened was when we were living in Nottingham in the late 80s, uh, we had a lodger um, and we talk about music quite a lot with him. And after he moved out, I was looking through my seven inch single collection in fastidiously alphabetical order. And I noticed planted in the H section, but not precisely in exactly the right alph alphabetical position, was mysteriously a seven inch of Jimi Hendrix all along the watchtower. And I thought, well, that's nice. That must be his parting gift. You know, he's he's realized that my collection doesn't really have that sort of thing. And that, how kind. Then I noticed that two of my most valuable and collectible punk singles had mysteriously oh. disappeared. I don't want to accuse anybody, but you can't really draw any other conclusion. Did you get any others or did you just get Hendrix? I only got Hendrix and it left me rather ill-disposed because I felt it was a poor substitute for my singles by the Sex Pistols and the Damned, which I really prized. Um, I came around to it in later years and I've got the album, the parent album, Electric Ladyland on CD. Because there was that whole phase in the early 2000s. Uh, one of our local record shops was Fop Records in Nottingham. And you could wander into Fop Records and there'd be racks and racks and racks of classic albums on CD for about a fiver. So I hoovered up loads of those just to kind of educate myself. Thing about All Along the Watchtower, it's what I would call boomer catnip. It advances that argument that pop music peaked artistically in the 1960s and it's all been downhill from then on. And a boomer Hendrix fan would probably say something along the lines of, well, it's not like all of that disposable plastic production line crap. Yeah, but I would argue to make that sort of comparison is to do a disservice to the art and the craft of pop music. Because pop music which is what we're here to talk about, isn't necessarily about trying to reach pinnacles of artistic boldness and innovation. It's just trying to be popular. And there's a skill in doing that. And it's not always the same skill that rock music needs to display too obviously. And clearly, it's a fantastic piece of music. You don't need me to tell you why. I prefer it, certainly, having heard the Bob Dylan version, I prefer it over the Bob Dylan version, but then I tend to prefer most Bob Dylan songs when they're not actually sung by Bob Dylan. Um, Nick mentioned Adele's Make You Feel My Love. That's another case in point. I have 
a quibble with the lyrics. I've been searching for images of watchtowers and they've confirmed my suspicions. Basically, you're not going to get very far going along a watchtower. For instance, the width of a typical Roman watchtower was 10 feet. And the width of the watchtowers used by East German border guards was typically four metres. Now, if Bob Dylan had called his song all the way up the watchtower, I wouldn't be quibbling. But then he's a visionary poet and I'm a mere nitpicking pedant. Just to be clear, then, he's not talking about the Jehovah's Witness magazine publication. I've completely misunderstood this song. I'm not sure you can go all along a periodical of any of any hue, really. When I was a teenager, I had, I had a book called The First 500 Number One Singles, and it was basically just like a little bio of all the ones. I honestly spent about 15 years of my life thinking it was voodoo chili. Yeah, yeah, well, I did Because that. I'd never... I'd, I'd never heard it, and I just saw it written down, and it looked like voodoo chili. Yeah, to I've me. got so I've got uh, Watchtower and Voodoo Child on seven inch. My dad uh, gave me his uh, record collection when I, I think really when he realised it was just taking up room in his house, and he was never listening to it. And I listened to uh, them quite a lot. Yeah, I I had no idea, and I think the the way I found out was at a Christmas party, and I will have been talking music with someone, and even the way I absorb music, I'm terrible. I will have heard the song loads of times and not taken in that it wasn't called uh, Voodoo Chili. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I brought it up with uh, my muso cousin and he put me right at a Christmas party and it was sort of quite a public. In fact, the only other time I've been more publicly embarrassed about mispronouncing something was when I was going out with a girl when I was uh, 20 and she was way out of my league and we were wandering around the first TK Maxx and I mentioned wanting to buy some bikini jeans. And she sneered at me. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever got over that either. Did your, uh, did your dad not used to sing Voodoo Chili to you on the way to swimming? <laughs> so I think it's through, it must be through my dad. You know, there's songs where you can't go, cause I guess because of my age. But I, can, I could not tell you the first time I heard this. It's just always been there. I also first discovered Jimi Hendrix through my dad. My dad was not a Jimi Hendrix fan in any way whatsoever, but he, he bought himself a Reader's Digest box set of hit music from 1960 to 1973. And it was mostly very much of the middle of the road variety you would expect to find on the Reader's Digest box set. But there, plonked on the 1970 side, probably next to something like Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes by Edison Lighthouse, there was Voodoo Child. And like you say, Trev, it was that really rough mix where you feel it's kind of the winds blowing it in and out. And I hated it. It disturbed me. It confused me. It sounded, I thought, well, they're all on drugs and they don't know how to write a tune properly and they need to grow up. And, oh, it's, it's not as good as Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap by the middle of the road. The idea of, imagine if Reader's Digest did with music what they did with novels, and you got like abridged versions, especially abridged for the Reader's Digest, the greatest songs of the 70s. You know, because there's, there's quite a few records by Led Zepp that could just be put into Pro Tools and, you know, made a snappy three and a half minutes long. And I could see Reader's Digest doing that. We sorted out all that music so you don't have to listen to it. Here is two and a half minutes of Stairway. Bang. Here's just the piano bit of Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> and then it and then it finishes. <laughs> right, let's move on to our record from The 70s. 
This is Darling by Frankie Miller. This was Frankie Miller's only top 10 hit, and it peaked at this position of number six. He did have three other somewhat smaller hits between 1977 and 1992. Darlin is, by some distance, his most popular song on Spotify. It's uh, had over six million streams. And a little fun fact for you, it was also used as the lead track on the European compilation LP, which came out around about the same time. And I'm going to slightly modify the title. The compilation LP was called Frankie Who? Frankie Flippin' Miller, That's Who? They didn't use the word flipping. European market, you see. Trev, what did you make of Frankie Miller's Darling? So I, I listened to this a few times. I, I wasn't aware of this one. And having heard it, I don't know it. Um, so obviously I don't own it and consequently never played it out. The first few listens, I was it's a bit beige. Nothing leapt out at me. Uh, and then I decided, as I often do, I'll, it's 70s onwards, I'll give a go, see if there's a video. And the video is like peak 70s. So obviously people were either doing groundbreaking videos at the time to promote their records, you know, and coming up with really, really great ideas, not having any ideas. So just singing it in front of some weird shutters uh, like Frankie Miller does. And it's just him in a really 70s outfit being really 70s in front of some shutters singing it and it was it was really endearing the video it made me like it more because it's just of the time it's so you know if you could only see uh us now listeners uh mike is in front of shutters and i mean you are dressed slightly more modernly than uh frankie miller is in the video <laughs> this oh i can't see your collar how big is your collar can i have a look Bottom down. Oh, no, yeah. that You'd need to have another three or four inches on that collar to, to match his shirt. But yeah, it, it really uh, endeared me a bit. And so I, I listened to it probably more than I would have done. Couldn't really get away from the Rod Stewart of it all. So I didn't go nuts and buy it or anything like that. But it's okay. It's nice enough. I, I don't know that I'd bring it up with musos to discuss because I don't know that I've got much to say about it. The only problem I had with it, and unfortunately I've not written down the entire lyric... But he says, I think he says something about lonesome and then he rhymes, rhymes it with, is it phone some? Yeah. Darling, I'm feeling pretty lonesome. I'd call you on the phone some, but I don't have a dime. Talk about a forced rhyme. But see, having you saying it sounds better. The video, because it's, and I think it's not a generated subtitles that he says uh i'm feeling really lonesome I call you on the phone son so it's actually not even a word s-o-n-e um what are the lyrics does he say phone some as in i would call you on the phone sometime or somehow i think it is some and some of the lyric sites out there also have it as some which would which would then recast the song as a love song to his little lad i'll call you on the phone son but i don't have a dime typical absent dad excuse nick what do you think well i think trev likes it more than frankie miller likes it i think is the fairest thing i can say everything that i've read about this says he he hates it i mean the song was i think seven years old at the point where his record company said look we're going to drop you you haven't had a hit you keep releasing these records that nobody's buying and they sort of did that thing where they kind of forced him to have a hit, if you like. I read a story where the guitarist on his album, 1977 album, reports that when Frankie Miller finally met the guy who wrote the song in a club, he swore at him and covered him in tomato ketchup, um, which is not the most rock and roll thing I've ever heard. I dis- I think that's very rock and roll, because how's he got the ketchup with him? In, an, in a club 
like what is it a sachet of ketchup and is he repeatedly opening sachets i hang on a minute. no no i i believe it was a bottle so i don't know whether he took a bottle of ketchup with him just on the off chance that he might run into somebody he didn't like maybe that's what they did in glasgow in the in the 70s <laughs> or maybe he was just protesting about the environment Yes, uh, I, I absolutely agree with Trev. I've written down here Rod Stewart. It gave me a slight whiff of Kenny Rogers, kind of the gambler sort of thing as well. You know, I heard it and then I thought, oh, I do know this. And then I don't know whether I do know it or whether it just sounds like all of those other songs that sound like that. So by the end of it, because it's repetitive, whether you think you've heard it, even though you never have, because by the end of it, you know how it goes. It's one of those sorts of songs um i listened to his album from the same era i not really great i I don't think but it didn't sound like this so it he had clearly been kind of railroaded into this i think because it doesn't sound like any of his other work at the time uh do you want a list of top 10 hits with the word darling in right well i'm interested i do but is it darling or Darling? Well, I've gone for Darling. There's actually not that many top 10 hits with Darling. In. No, there's not that many. There's Yes, My Darling Daughter by Edie Gourmet. Gourmet? Gorm? Edie Gorm? Uh, My Dixie Darling by Lonnie Donegan. Uh, Move Over Darling. Two versions of that reached the top 10. The Doris Day and the Tracy Ullman. And uh, Come Back Darling by UB40. And this. That's the only songs with Darling that have ever reached the top 10. I mean, there's lots of minor hits with Darling in, you know, Merry Christmas Darling and stuff. But they're, they're the only top 10s. Okay. Wow. I was honestly expecting about 30 or 40 songs, but then I, I can't think of any others. There was a really good punk rock record, very obscure punk rec- record by Johnny Moped called Darling, Let's Have Another Baby. And then it continues, Let's Have One Soon on Our Second Honeymoon. That sounds so punk. It was sung ironically. It was, <laughs> yeah, lambasting the suburbanites ah. by imitating their banality. Yeah. I also have got Rod Stewart written down in my notes. You can't get away from it, really. I was aware of Frankie Miller at the time. I was aware of him because John Peel used to play him quite a lot. And I was listening to John Peel's show religiously every night I possibly could. Up until this point, Frankie Miller had been a respected kind of soulful, bluesy singer. He'd been around at the beginning of the UK pub rock scene. He'd recorded with all the kind of cool, incredible people from from that era. Uh, He guested on a Thin Lizzy track. Uh, Beautiful. It's a kind of soul ballad. It's called Still In Love With You. And it's one of Thin Lizzy's most um, best loved tracks amongst their fan base. And it's one that they always perform live. So he had critical chops. And yeah, as has been said, it, it absolutely reeks of record company pressure to give him a hit, for God's sake. And it is such a blatant ride on Rod Stewart's coattails. It, it does diminish Frankie Miller's considerable talents. And I'm not sure he really recovered from it because then he kind of fell between two stools. He wasn't going to carry on being a cut price Rod Stewart, but then he kind of blew his credibility with the people he would otherwise gone back to. He had had a comeback single in the 90s with some kind of Scottish football theme to it. And then in in later life, he suffered suffered very badly from ill health. He's still around, but he's not able to make music anymore. And there were benefit concerts and tribute albums and some good people grouped together to pay respect to him so it's kind of sad that for most people darling is the song for which he will be remembered i think he would much rather it was otherwise well no i was just going to say i i think trev is absolutely right i think if you painted those cupboard doors 
behind Mike in red, you would have lifted them straight from the video. Why he had wardrobe doors behind him in the video, I've no idea. Uh, but I love that. I love the fact that they just clearly had no idea and then just went, oh, well, let's just not bother. What is there? That'll do. You know I mean, for recording a podcast, standing in front of cupboard doors is perfectly acceptable. But for surely for a pop video, you've got to go, oh, there's got to be something we can do. Nah, that'll do. Cupboard doors, mate. The finest use of cupboard doors in pop videos that I can think of was a lockdown video that Cliff Richard did from his holiday retreat or whatever. He lip synced to We Don't Talk Anymore in his vast and capacious closet, which had a lot of doors. And all the way through the track, he was doing new and creative things, opening and shutting these slatted cupboard doors and kind of weaving between them and doing his awkward hand movements. Highly worth seeking out if you can find it. Shall we move on? Let's have our song from... This is Brother Beyond with He Ain't No Competition. This was the second and final top 10 hit for Brother Beyond. It peaked at this position, number six. It was the follow-up to The Harder I Try, which had reached number two uh, in September of the same year. Like The Harder I Try, it was also written and produced by Stock Aitken Waterman. Uh, After this, it was diminishing returns. Brother Beyond had three more top 40 hits in 1989, each one peaked lower than the one before. And then that was basically that. But I don't need to tell you any more about Brother Beyond because Nick has written a book called 101 Forgotten Pop Hits of the 1980s. And of course, I have a copy. Earlier today, I thought... I wouldn't be surprised if Nick has written about Brother Beyond in his book. I open the book. Lo and behold, the very first entry in Nick's book is dedicated to Brother Beyond's The Harder I Try. It has even beaten Love Changes Everything by Climby Fisher, officially the greatest single ever made, into number two in his book. Nick, I suspect you are going to have a lot of positive and interesting things to say about Brother Beyond. Off you go. The reason that it's the first chapter is he was the first person I interviewed. He was the first person to reply to sort of an email that I put out asking if he would be involved in stuff. So it's not the best. It's just the first. So we talked last time um, about, you know, those bands that you became a massive fan of in your formative years of listening to music. Mike, you were talking about Slade when you were a young teenager or what have you. I was 14 when Brother Beyond came along and I loved them. I loved Brother Beyond from the very start. So they had a few singles, Chain Gang Smile, Can You Keep a Secret?, uh, how many times I think that had got a lot of radio airplay, but had never made the top 40. So they were kind of trying on the cusp of hitting it big. Their record company, EMI, then won a charity auction to have a song written by Stock Aitken and Waterman. And EMI originally asked the, uh, them to write a song for the Bell Stars, who were on the label at the time. And Pete Waterman, I think, used to drink in the same pub as Brother Beyond. And he said, oh, no, can I write a song for them instead? So uh, they did. They wrote The Harder I Try, exactly as you say, which I think to this day is probably one of, if not the best, Stock Aitken and Waterman track of them all, I would say. Just, I think it is a really intelligent piece of pop music. And then obviously they followed this up. This uh, here, The competition in He Ain't Known Competition is Matt Goss of Bross, who are the big rival boy band, if you like, at the uh, certainly alphabetically in my record collection, you got to Bross, then you got to Brother Beyond immediately afterwards. 
so the competition was Matt Goss in this instance. I think that they then overheard the band making some slightly disparaging remarks about the songwriting trio, and then they parted ways shortly after. They had some hits with their uh, self-penned stuff, uh, as you say, Mike, uh, Be My Twin, and a, a couple of others, uh, and then essentially just disappeared off the face of the earth. Egg White, the original drummer of the band, went on to write for, he wrote, he won an Ivan Novello, he wrote Leave Right Now, uh, for Will Young, he wrote Chasing Pavements, loads of others worked with James Morrison and Natalie Brulia and loads and loads of other people. So became a very kind of established uh, songwriter. And Nathan Moore went on to be in Worlds Apart. If you remember, the boy band from the mid 90s had a few hits and stuff. So he joined another boy band, uh, essentially, and became a, a, a sort of star again in the 90s. One of the interesting things he told me, we were talking about the Hard Ride Try, which got to number two. I think in the midweek sales chart, it was number one and i think it was narrowly pipped by something like 20 sales or something like that it was an extremely close run thing i think it was groovy kind of love beat it to number one and he said that the massive difference between having a number one hit and a number two hit in the radio stations around the world will play a what was number one on this day kind of thing but they never play what was number two on this day in history and what have you and he said it just makes such a massive difference presumably financially but also in the consciousness of the record buying public that they narrowly missed out on having a number one record i i mean won't surprise you i love stock and waterman i love pop music i was 14 i bought this album i have got this album i listened to it the other day sounds as good as i remember i just i absolutely i just i love it trev similarly enthused well, I haven't got that much to say about it. Um, <laughs> it was so I wasn't aware of this song. I was aware of Brother Beyond. Uh, similarly, you know, at the time I was reading Smash Hits, they were big Smash Hits territory. I'm pretty sure I had a Brother Beyond badge and I, I don't recall particularly liking Brother Beyond. You know, I, I remember their big hit, but also at the time when you were buying Smash Hits, that represented a fairly major investment. So I will have worn the badge just because it was a badge I had. And, you know, you wore whatever badges and all the stickers in the same way that they used to print lyrics. And the stuff that I was starting to get into, I guess, you know, the underground at the time, like Bomb the Bass and S-Express, didn't get as much page time in Smash Hits as bands like Brother Beyond's because, you know, one of the stock things that they did in uh, Smash Hits was write down the lyrics. And you don't get many lyrics in a Bomb the Bass song because, you know, sort of dance-orientated music. They would still put them in. I think I read the lyrics to Pump Up the Volume by Mars in there. This is so Smash Hits territory. Uh, I've written down here, they look like 10 from Bross, which is what Smash Hits called Craig Out of Bross. Craig Out of Bross was essentially the other one. It's a horrible, disparaging way to talk about him, but there were two twins in Bross, both blonde-haired, blue-eyed, love machines, presumably. And then there was the drummer, who was like, oh, yeah, also that guy. And very few people seem to notice when he left Bross. These guys look like Craig out of Bross. The dancing in the video is so... I didn't even need to check that it was BWL, because I'm just going, oh, yeah, this is definitely production everything it's clearly that sort of music factory thing. And one of the things I find really interesting is, you know, this is only 10 years on from the last track that we've been talking, but in a pop music world, it's a completely different galaxy. Drum machines and uh, the video is multiple camera angles and it's so smooth. They did lose some points for me in um, the fact that in the video, he's got a microphone that he's singing into and then quite a few what times he's singing about 15 foot away from the microphone and I don't think he's got the vocal technique of like Pavarotti to be able to actually do that. The main thing that I got from this song 
was is that everything changes by take that is just better than this because it just sounds like that song to me and i know that came later but it's all right i just prefer <laughs> take that i mean it, it we're, we're take that influenced by this maybe maybe this is a lot more important a song than we give it credit for because you know they must have been listening to bands around that time and getting their ideas they may have said we don't want to end up like brother beyond we don't want to make their mistakes well you know they, they had careers afterwards so they've done all right their big single is better than this and yeah everything changes by take that is better than this it's okay it's a bit forgettable uh i didn't know it i didn't own it i still don't own it i can't say i don't like it but i also can't say i do like it, it it's stock aching and waterman filler i think okay i love brother beyond but i think you'd struggle to make a case for them having influenced anyone <laughs> like literally anyone <laughs> well i meant as a cautionary tale it's funny trevor you say it's forgettable i've been earworming this he ain't no competition pretty much all day i am earworming it now there is really? an invisible soundtrack to this very recording where the chorus of he ain't no competition is going round and round on a loop quite pleasurable it's interesting this shows where we stand generationally as being somewhat different because as nick was just falling in love with pop at the age of 14 i was just checking out of certain aspects of pop at the age of 26 i was becoming more discerning than i would have been a few years earlier there's often the point towards the end of a decade where a new generation checks in and pop effectively drops a generation and you no longer feel that pop is growing up as you grow up it's like what's this that all the kids are listening to and that's kind of how i felt about Stock Aitken Waterman's move into pure pop music at around about this time. Uh, so I regarded Brother Beyond as deeply uncool. I had been a fan of Stock Aitken Waterman, but that was back from the days when they were doing Hazel Dean and Dead or Alive. You know, good, banana armor, good, punchy, high energy based stuff. I knew where they were coming from, but they really pivoted from high energy to pop in 88, with the likes of Kylie and Jason and everything they cranked out thereafter. I think this song improves as it goes along. At the very beginning, I think it gets off to quite a wheezy start, and I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm not going to get into this. But I think it ends up being quite a decent, almost like a northern soulish pastiche in some ways. To me, it is different from the other production line, Hit Factory, S.A.W. stuff. Um, because of those soul influences, it was the same on The Harder I Try. I do feel that Stock Aitken Waterman spent more than their customary 15 minutes working on it. There were some nice touches along the way. It raises it above what had basically become their bog-standard template. I think what remains my sticking point is Nathan Moore's vocals, which I still find puny and weedy. I know we shouldn't really be talking about The Harder I Try, but I have got a fun fact about The Harder I Try. Pete Waterman had just won a legal case against Mars for Pump Up the Volume because it had dared to use a tiny little vocal sample from Stock Aker Waterman's Roadblock. So he made a big point when The Harder I Try came out of crediting on the sleeve of the single the fact they sampled the drums from, I think it was the Isley Brothers' This Old Heart of Mine. And I'm fairly certain that was the first time a sample was ever officially credited on any record at all. It made him deeply uncool, didn't it? That I remember uh, speaking to uh, Mark uh, out of Alternate about how Pete uh, Waterman had won an award because 
because Pete Walkman was always quite involved with the dance scene, like, you know, not just Hitman and her stuff like that. He, he was really into dance music and he won an award almost like, like a lifetime achievement thing at the same time that he brought out that lawsuit against Mars and at the award ceremony, kind of the entire burgeoning dance scene was booing him because he'd gone from being this sort of quite, you know, guy who wasn't in the dance scene. He wasn't cool. He wasn't part of the underground, but they knew he was there and, you know, they, they respected him and that was fine. He did his thing to being this establishment individual who just ruined the dreams of dance music for being able to you know rob whatever they ever wanted uh, i do have to mention with the uh, to go back to brother beyond the first time i listened to it i'm like well that's an interesting musical choice in the middle when the, the solo comes in it sounds like a sitar and in the video he's playing a guitar but we've already encountered videos where clearly there is no guitar being played and someone's really playing it is it a sitar or because or is it just a guitar tuned to sound like i couldn't decide whether it was a sitar or a synthesized because it just seems like such a weird choice like to go oh do you know what this needs this fairly disposable pop song <laughs> it's a sitar and that's like wow how have you got to that one he's definitely playing a guitar in the video nick i think you should scuttle downstairs get the lp read out the credits and we'll find out whether a sitar was credited i did actually try and research that for myself to find out if there was a sitar i'm i'm, I'm surprised we got through three reviews of it before we mentioned the fact that it's just that if if it's just the tuning of a guitar like wow what an odd what an odd choice i thought i think it goes back to what you were saying mike that this and the hard ride tray are different the hard ride tray has got a real motown not just because it uses the Aussie brothers but it does have a motown feel to it i think and this as trev says with the sitar and stuff it is different to what they were doing for sonia and sunita and all those people at the time i think so well it doesn't go on dinger wrong dinger for starters it goes black bum flack bum flack progress let's move on to our song from this is would you dot 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 question mark by touch and go this was the only chart entry for touch and go it peaked at number three Uh, they were a three-way collaboration between a television composer called david lowe a trumpeter called james lynch and a vocalist called vanessa lancaster Proper one-hit wonders. They did release a follow-up, <laughs> the somewhat hubristically titled Straight to Number One, which completely failed to chart. Trev, your thoughts? So this one, uh, I was uh, very aware of. I, I kind of know it inside out. I, I own it. I like it. I do from time to time uh, still play this. Don't know that I would discuss this with Musos. But I, th- I think the only thing I would say to Musos about this is it's a good example of a cheesy crossover dance track. It's technically drum and bass, but it's so, you know, poppy. I mean, the rhythms are, are drum and bass. Um, it's got quite a sort of retro throwbacky trumpet thing going on to it would you say this is like the forerunner to electro swing that kind of novelty nostalgia but it is dance music the video is gibberish i I watched the video more times than i should have done because it's just nonsense these things like fried eggs on washing lines and i don't think they're trying to be clever with it i think they're just trying to make a silly video so fair enough but it's just a silly song it's really catchy this i think 
will have been written by they've just gone I've noticed you around would you go to bed with me that is a catchy lyric that is people will scratch that into their pencil cases write it on toilet doors you know it could be a meme if it come a little bit later it's just silly and it's perfectly good fun it's only two and a half minutes long which is all it needs to be it doesn't have any more ideas than two and a half minutes one of the things that a lot of dance music does is takes you 10 minutes to tell you 30 seconds worth of music uh, and I, you know dance music is made for dance floors and people in various states on dance floors so that's fine but it's two and a half minutes long it gets the job done it's in and out no mucking about it's silly but it's perfectly good fun i will still i still do play this from time to time maybe early doors where you just want to play something that it's not a novelty record but it's pretty close it might make someone smile equally it might get them tapping the feet or that might get them dancing and it's a good crossover track which djs love you know if i wanted to go into from pop music if i wanted to go into drum and bass this is a great segue tune because you can go from this into dillinger or whatever equally you can go the other way i you could play this in between Northern Soul because it's so poppy and accessible. It's just a, a, a really nice pop record. I really like it. Nick, do you share Trev's enthusiasm? Um, I'm going to posit a theory here, which stick with me with this. So David Lowe, who was the brains behind Touch and Go, later became quite well known for writing some television themes. Knowing what I know now about his later work, I can draw a really straight line between would you by touch and go and the theme to the one show now he is responsible for writing both of those but if you think about the brass when it kicks in you know would you go to bed with me and the brass comes in it is basically the theme from the one show so he's later been the bbc have come along and said right we're we're launching this new magazine show and he's gone i know what we can do that hit I had with the brass and the trumpets would just do that again. So I've listened to them both. It just sounds like the, the more I listen to it, the more it sounds like the theme to the one show. And you think, well, of course it would. It's the same guy. Uh, he also, by the way, wrote the themes that they're still using on the BBC News. So the guy behind this wrote that BBC News theme that they've used for the last 20 odd years with the pips in and all that. He wrote all of those. He wrote the themes Countryfile, Cash in the Attic, Grand Designs, loads of stuff that you would recognise. So he's had a very successful career other than being a one hit wonder for this. But yeah, go away. Listen to Would You at five to seven. Then put BBC One on and listen to the one show. And uh, uh, Honestly... Trev will be doing that his next night. I'm literally, I'm, ma- I'm making notes going, this is the mashup they've all been waiting for. Uh, forget dropping the uh, EastEnders theme tune into the middle of hip-hop like I've been doing recently for no apparent reason. This is what people want. That's <laughs> definitely going to work. Straight from Would You, straight into the one show. Boom. Honestly, can't fail. You want me to tune into the one show? Well, there's a first time for everything. <laughs> Never, ever watched it well you don't have to watch it just listen to the theme tune and you and you'll be going there you go that's where it's come from yeah what did they discuss on the one show what would the hook be i've noticed you around can you do something about my electric bills like i've noticed you around here's the world's biggest marrow <laughs> yeah it's interesting what you're trevor you're drawing a line with this to drum and bass saying it might have influenced things that went ahead i was drawing a line backwards because there'd been a, a kind of a dark jazz based dance act that had had some success earlier in the 90s called well i don't know if they were called us three or us three i think they were called us three and their thing was taking kind of jazz samples and turning them into funky dance tracks and i'd assumed that uh, would you by touch and go 
was following where us three or US three had led. I thought that to the extent that I assumed that the, the trumpet lick was either a sample of a jazz standard or it was, you know, based around a jazz standard, but it's not. It's an original composition with a live trumpet and no samples and quite a lot of live instrumentation along the way. So I've got to give Muso props for that. I do find it amusing. I think there's good comic timing in the vocals. It reminds me of a similar remark I made very early on in my <clears throat> dating career. There was this chap who I'd met and he was going out with a female friend of mine and I thought he was desperately handsome, but always going out with my girlfriends, you know, that's never gonna happen. And then they split up and I saw him in the gay club, one of my very first visit to the gay club. <laughs> Didn't expect to see you here. And he went, yeah, I'm by. Oh, oh, right. Oh, he was even more distressingly handsome. So I tried to, it's like the girl in the song. I tried to keep it cool. And we were having a nice conversation about this and that. And then there was a slight pause. And I just blurted out, uh, would you go to bed with me? And then I realised I'd just been horribly gauche. And I could see that he thought I'd been horribly gauche, but that he also kind of did. So we just pretended I kind of hadn't said it. We went back to our nice conversation. And yes, he did go to bed with me twice. I, th I thought you were going to say, and yes, he did form a band called Touch and Go and write a song about it. <laughs> and, he's, he's, and he's now presenting The One Show on Wednesdays and Fridays. <laughs> we still have a mutual friend who introduced us at some kind of garden party about five years ago. And this guy just looked at me and said, oh, very pleased to meet you. I was thinking, you don't remember probably i didn't i didn't correct him it wasn't the time or the place um yeah i i like this but i have a i do have a sticking point with it it's not really touch and goes fault at all it's the 60s pastiche elements which are very well done but there was a lot of that in popular culture of that specific time in the late 90s and it reminds me of those you had all the cheesy listening compilations lava lamps had become a thing you just had the mike flowers pops there were lots of like game shows where people like johnny vaughan and uh, vernon k would ironically struck down illuminated staircases while the house band played something by andy williams and ironic dolly birds would gyrate in spangly mini dresses and then the Vernon Kay or Johnny Vorma gets to the bottom of the steps and they do that kind of sort of double finger point pistol move when they got to the bottom, ironically. There was also the theme tune from Graham Norton's chat show, the Propellerheads track, that was quite similar to that. So it's not touch and goes fault, but it reminds me of something I found a bit icky, I suppose, a bit overdone at that time. A track that, whilst you were talking, actually, two men, a drum machine and a trumpet in the 80s, and I think it was called Tired of Getting Pushed Around, and yes. it was just a loop, it was early poppy dance music, and it just had a bit of a trumpet thing in there, um, and yeah, you could draw lines to that, couldn't you? And I'm glad you mentioned the Graham Norton theme tune, because it was that big beat, because where does this sit? This doesn't sit within big beat, it was, you know, faster than that, but there were, you know, there were lots of things going on around pop music at that time, where it was quite cool dance music where does this sit you know is this so ironic that it's cool or is it no no this is right out your dance music's always had that weird relationship with tracks that hits you know oh, oh that one's all right oh no 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 you, d you don't do the charts oldie's not going to be playing this uh in his fabric set is he but at the same time would you go this is a, a gateway 
drug to the DJ hypes of the world and stuff like that. I, I, I just don't know. It did make me think a little bit of Big Beat. There was actually a track on their one and only album that's called Big Beat. And again, I went to my bookshelf. Uh, Rory Hoy, who wrote the theme tune of the jingles for this very podcast, he has written the definitive history of the Big Beat movement. It, it, it goes into exhaustive detail. It is the ultimate reference work on Big Beat music. And if he had considered Touch and Go to be even slightly a Big Beat act, he would have mentioned them. And I leafed through very carefully. It's not in there. They are officially not Big Beat. We can confirm that. Okay, let's move on. Our record from... is The Promise by Girls Aloud. This was the 19th of 21 top 10 hits that Girls Aloud had between 2002 and 2012. It was their fourth and final number one and the biggest selling single of their chart career. It was awarded Best British Single at the 2009 Brit Awards and that made it the group's very first win at the Brits. Nick. Your turn to talk about Girls Aloud. So we were talking um, a few minutes ago about Stock Aitken and Waterman and the domination, if you like, of the pop music of the late 80s. And with Girls Aloud, we come to what you could legitimately call the equivalent kind of songwriting team of the early mid 2000s in Xenomania, who'd been going... Obviously, since the late 90s, they were involved with the Sugar Babes and Shares Believe and Gabriella Chilmy and Pet Shop Boys, lots of other people that they wrote for. But they were the kind of songwriting team behind most of Girls Aloud and uh, Sugar Babes stuff. So essentially kind of defined in a lot of ways the sound of pop music in that particular three or four or five years. I was lucky enough that uh, when Girls Aloud did their farewell tour, their penultimate night of their tour was in Nottingham. Uh, there were tears, honestly, tears all over the place. Not mine, but theirs mainly. But I was there too, Nick. Beautiful. I mean, I was a, probably a slightly late adopter. I mean, Girls Aloud is everything that I like about pop music, but I was not a massive fan of Sound of the Underground, basically because I backed the male band One True Voice in the Pop Stars, The Rivals thing, because I really liked Sacred Trust. I thought it was a great record. They weren't a boy band. They were a vocal harmony group. A vocal harmony group. And they obviously um, uh, reached number two in the charts. Uh, Sound of the Underground went to number one. Uh, Girls Aloud ended up being massive. One True Voice disappeared off the face of the earth. So I was a slightly uh, later doctor. I, th- I just think it was an incredible run of great singles they had, Girls Aloud, I think. There's not really a dud amongst them. Um, they were really at the peak of their power for a long time. I mean, you know, Love Machine is brilliant. Uh, even things like Something Kind of Ooh, Biology, just absolutely fantastic the promise in some ways a little bit different from the previous stuff it has a real motown 60s thing the video obviously is kind of 60s themed um they're going for the kind of phil specter wall of sound type approach with this i think it's great terry wogan claimed it contains the theme to blankety blank was his main uh, gripe with it uh but i think i just think it's it's not my favorite girls allowed track but it's Right up there, I think it's a, a terrific pop record. What about you, Trev? Um, so anyone who uh, listened to the last podcast uh, will be aware that I'm, it's fair to say, relatively anti-X Factor type shows. Uh, I don't have a lot 
good to say about them, but I do think that Girls Aloud, one of the good things that I can say about that whole, you can almost call it a genre, can't you? They've got a lot of really, really good songs. I think The Promise, I didn't actually realise it was as late in their career. Um, I think The Promise was the one where I went, hang on a minute, this is good music. You know, there were tracks that I was prepared to play. You know, my criteria for playing music is I won't play anything that I think is actively bad, but I'm aware music's subjective and there's quite a lot of times that I play songs that I don't like that I think are good or whatever. But that was one where I went, no, this is a good song. There are things to this. And, you know, it made me go back and listen again to, it's like Love Machine's a really good song. Biology, I think, is a really good song. They've got loads of hits. I think they have enough very good singles to go, yeah, they're, they're a good band. And when it comes to TV talent shows, essentially, you kind of have to remember that the band were only made the same way that Destiny's Child were made and someone worked out that they could televise it and make a lot more money doing it that way and make huge amounts, you know, swathes of entertainment. It's not entertainment as I particularly like it. I don't like the shows. I don't like the concept. I really object to them destroying people's dreams publicly. They don't support the bands who don't win or they blow sunshine up the backsides of some of them. You're going to be massive. And then when it don't work out, just you are dead to us. And there's no support after the event. You know, I think really, really dark things can come out of it. But also occasionally you can get a Girls Aloud. I can't think of any other one that's as big as Girls Aloud. In one direction, I guess that's kind of about it. But Girls Aloud are a success story. Very, very good pop records. This is a really, really good song. I, I like the retro aesthetic to it. The message of the video, that it's okay to get up in front of the screen at a drive-in movie uh, and your mates will beat their horns and everybody at the drive-in will really love it. I think that's only true if you actually are in Girls Aloud. I wouldn't recommend that to anyone who's not in Girls Aloud. But probably One Direction could get away with that and people are like, oh, brilliant, my movie-going experience has been ruined but it's one direction, so I'll let it slide. Uh, but other than that, I think it's fun. The video looks great. looks like a million dollars, doesn't it? The production's lovely. It's catchy. I think the second time I heard it, I was singing along. Uh, and I do think this was the first Girls Aloud song that I went. I'm buying that, not specifically to play. It's probably the Girls Aloud song that I play least. The tempo and you know the timing of it, it's not one of the easier songs to play. But I'm happy to admit that I own this outside of DJing. There's loads of music that I own that I only own because I'm a DJ. That one, I'm going, no, that's a really, really good song. It's a glowing endorsement for me. Yeah, yeah I've seen Girls Aloud twice. I, I took my partner's then 12-year-old cousin to see Girls Aloud in 2008. She got very cross with me because I kept trying to dad dance and apparently I was embarrassing her. She kept slapping me every time I stood up. Um, we'd kind of reached rapprochement, I think, later on when I took to see Justin Bieber and I was allowed to dad dance and she was allowed to scream at Justin. Uh, like Nick, I saw them again in Nottingham in 2013. I, I reviewed the show and I was checking my notes in the review. At the beginning of the show, Kimberly said to the crowd, this is our penultimate show didn't quite get the reaction she wanted. So she said, that's the one before last, just in case they were struggling with the word penultimate. Yeah, I love Girls Aloud. It's one of the best, the most consistent hit-making acts of the 2000s. Uh, I think maybe what helped stood in their favour is they actually took control of their own careers quite early on. I think, I think they were originally going to be managed by Louis Walsh. I have a feeling they kicked Louis Walsh into touch very, very quickly. And they had their own ideas about how they wanted to present it. And they were on the same page with Xenomania. And there was, 
you know, they both fed into that, um, which you know gives them some legitimacy. However, this isn't one of my favourites. It was late on in their career. I had been buying every single Girls Aloud single the moment it came out for many years. And I I was just starting to tail off. I think this was the beginning of the next campaign for the next album or something like that. I think there'd been a gap and they'd come back. And I felt that Girls Aloud were slightly being reconfigured at this stage. They'd always had that kind of bratty, snotty, kind of vulgar energy to them where they was like you know flicking v signs at cameras almost like the spice girls in a way but with the promise i felt there was a move to present them in a more glossy shall we say ladylike manner um more starry if you like and i felt that came at a price i'd never seen the video until today but I had seen lots of performance clips of them doing it on TV shows. And I have a memory of them all just standing rather formally in a long line, wearing matching, rather elegant and rather dull frocks and kind of not moving from their positions. And that, to me, spoilt what was good about the band. I also don't get why people, and including the people who wrote it, saying it was a tribute or a pastiche of Phil Spector's Wall of Sound production style, because I don't hear that at all. I know a lot of Phil Spector music. I don't hear it. All I hear is, yeah, the similarly, the production feels overcluttered to me. There's not enough space in it. They've thrown everything at it, and maybe they could have actually done with taking some of those elements out again. Having seen the video which doesn't do this, we're all standing in a row wearing glossy frocks, being a little bit ladylike and a little bit boring. It's kind of made me warm to the song a bit more because it just it, it's performed in a different way, which I find more fun and more appealing. At least there are still some of those trademark bafflingly surreal lyrics that you always got in Girls Aloud songs. This is the, here I am a walking primrose. I shouldn't imagine even the girls have a clue why that lyric is in the song. The blankety-blank element, yeah, I mean, I, I, did, I didn't need Terry Wogan to tell me. It was so clearly the blankety-blank theme tune. I kind of wish it hadn't borrowed elements of blankety-blank, because I think it spoils the chorus. It's, it's rhythmically ungainly. You can't dance to it, or at least I couldn't dance to it. I do play Girls Aloud Records out. I had a recent night, big night out on the town in Leeds with a mate of mine. I occasionally have big Saturday nights out in the city in the name of field research to find out what's going down with the youth. And I discovered on this night, as we went from venue to venue, we appear to be in the middle of a massive Girls Aloud revival. Wherever I went, more Girls Aloud songs were played. Not the promise. If I'm playing Girls Aloud, Nine times out of ten, I'll play their cover of the Pointer Sisters Jump because it is just such a banger. And if not, I might play Sounds of the Underground. Girls Aloud or Sugar Babes? Girls Aloud. Girls Aloud. I went to see the Sugar Babes live. Again, I was reviewing the show. They spent tuppence on their arena show. They hadn't even bothered getting big screens in. And this was at Nottingham Arena, which holds 9,000 people. And they'd given me a really crummy seat to review the gig from. The decent acts. They make sure the journalists are down the front. Sugar Babes didn't. I just did three dots on the horizon. They had no chemistry or rapport on stage 
whatsoever. It really, really put me off. I like the sugar babes. I, I mean, I wouldn't go, you know, I wouldn't go and watch Girls Aloud live. If someone gave me free tickets, I'd go likewise with sugar babes, but they're, they're not at all the types of bands that I would go and see. Um, I like the sugar babes. Hard to be as passionate about the sugar babes though, because it was just that rolling lineup. You know, they were just a production, you know, machine. Oh yeah. Yo, sorry. You're not hitting well with the focus group. You're out. And in comes, you know, super sub parachuted in. So, you know, girls allowed. They're not a band in the sense of a band, are they? But they're still, there's that unit about them, isn't there? Sugar Babes, it's production line. Girls Allowed, you felt were a gang who stuck together. But with a promise, I felt it was like a showcase for each girl to do her little bit. And I I felt that rapport was slightly evaporating. Well, it was, wasn't it, at the time? It can't have been long before. Was it Cheryl left first, I think? Well, they carried on for another five years. Well, really? no, not oh, five wow. years, sorry. The farewell tour was spring 2013. They carried on for the four and a half years, but they weren't constantly recording. I think their comeback, well, I think the last album was called 10, and there'd been quite a gap between albums at that stage. Um, I think with playing the song, there's not many pop records that are, you You just have to drop it. I don't think there's many ways you can mix this in. Or well, we used to call, before DJ started saying, drop You'd cut it. It's a cut. You play it all the way through and then you cut something else in. I don't think I've ever, and I've tried to mix pretty much everything. I can't think I've ever tried to mix this. I've probably only played this 10 times. It's Christmas period, eight o'clock, the, the, the bar's full uh, and you want to stick on something that girls will sing to, but you know it's not time to get them dancing yet. This is that gold territory with this song for me. Okay, let's move on to our final single. This one is from... This is Without Me by Halsey. Now, this was Halsey's only top 10 hit as the lead artist on her own track. But as a featured artist... She's been on three more top 10 hits between 2016 and actually this year. As a featured artist, she's appeared on two number ones. She, in 2016, she appeared with the Chainsmokers on Closer. In 2018, she appeared with Benny Blanco on Eastside. And she's back in the top 10 earlier this year, providing vocals with Justin Timberlake on Stay With Me by Calvin Harris. This is her most popular song on Spotify. It's got 1.6 billion streams. However, her collab with the Chainsmokers has got 2.4 billion. It peaked to number three in the UK, stayed on the top 100 for 30 weeks, a big hit, but it reached number one in the USA. And it was her only US chart topper as a lead artist. And I just mentioned she collabed with Justin Timberlake this year. The bridge of this song, Without Me, actually has a little interpolation from a Justin Timberlake previous hit, Cry Me, A River, Trev Halsey. Right, so I mentioned uh, with Frankie Miller's song, uh, a relatively forgettable song, the video endeared me to the song more. And then to The Girls Aloud, The Promise, Mike just said, actually, the video made you like the song more. That's kind of, for me the job of pop music videos. I think this song's, it's not for me. I don't like the modern style of production with the finger clips and the where it seems to be made to be played on people's phones. It sounds like they've just gone, make a song that sounds like it's from the year 2018. It's just a bit cliched for me. 
But then I'm like, oh, well, I'll watch the video and see what that does for me. And the video makes me hate this song. They're both telling a slightly different message. The song lyrics, it's a bit Human League, Don't You Want Me? But I think directed at someone who's a bit of a, a sad case. So it's not, whereas Don't You Want Me? You know, you weren't anybody and I made you famous. This is, oh, you were in a right place, but I picked you up and I saved you. Which I think is a relatively, oh, that's okay, lyrically. I don't mind that. The video is sort of telling the story of just these two. They just seem to be awful people. Um, she seems like an awful character in it. There is no likable character in the video. I think the bloke is worse because he's chucking things about and he's shouting right in her face and things like that. But she does an awful lot of shouting in the video. She's going through his belongings. It just seems to be a story of two unlikable people having an unlikable relationship. And then the end of the video is she like walks away from him and says, like, hey, I'm not tied to you anymore. I broke off free. And I, I think you're meant to be going, hey, yeah, you go, girl. And I'm not at all. I'm just like, oh, right, I don't care. I couldn't care less if you stayed together and were destructive forever because they just, they drink too much and they don't live well. And this all started from when I started watching the video, it opens up with directed by which I'm always, oh, that's a big thing. If you're, the opening of your pop video is, and this video is directed by someone, I'm going to take you on a journey and I'm going to tell you a story. And it, it doesn't have to be a good story. It can be a sad story. Lots of pop videos end with sad stories, but not one where by the end of it, I don't like anyone involved in the song whatsoever. I don't feel good about the outcome of it. And it makes me like the song less. A pop music video should make me like a song more and this, I think Halsey's all right. The song that she did with Calvin Harris, she's got a, a, a nice enough voice. I, I don't think there's a great deal to it, but I think this song's better than the video. I think Halsey deserves better than the production that's on this. It just seems just so tapping contemporary. And it, it, it just sounds like a, a record label has, got, has done everything about this. You are going in there. You are going to make this video. It's going to be an epic. And... It's going to sound like this. It doesn't sound like it's got anything to do with actually her in it. And I, I think she deserves better. And I really, really did not enjoy this whatsoever. Interesting that I introduced her as Halsey. You've been referring to her as Halsey. Um, we're now going to find out how Nick's going to pronounce her name. I would go Halsey, but I don't really know. I think the first time I heard her referred to as Halsey and then it stuck. I don't know what I don't know what it is. Um, I'm sure it was Scott Mills uh, was talking about her. And it, this might be a while ago, um, but I could be, you might be right. Well, I got, your dad calls her Halsey, Trev. So um, oh. <laughs> I, I presume that that's right, but uh, who knows? Um, I actually think that we are living in a an absolutely golden era of female-led pop music. I really genuinely do think that it is arguably as good as it ever has been. You know, I just literally scribbled down a list. Gaga, Julie, Persigrid, Griff, Dylan, Baby Queen, Mimi Webb, Muna, Rina Sawayama, Carly Rae Jepsen, Maisie Peters, Ava Max. Robin, get Robin in there. She's good. Robin, yeah, hundreds more. So I think we are living in a real golden era of great female pop stars, for want of a better term. This is... Not my thing, really. It feels too cool for me. I mean, I love pop music, but it, it it's the sort of thing that if I took my 12-year-old cousin to, they would uh, slap me for trying to dance to it, I think. It just feels like it's not for me 
Whereas I don't feel that with, you know, I saw Dua Lipa quite recently. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal show. But I think if I went to Halsey, people, I think it's not for me. What I think is interesting about it is the concept of the the sad banger. So I think that this is what this is. It's a sad banger. So upbeat pop song with a sad heart. And I was thinking, you talk about Robin, Dancing on My Own is probably the absolute ultimate sad banger of them all. KTB crying for no reason, you know, that kind of sort of devastatingly downbeat story dressed up in a floor filling dance tune, which I think is a when they get it right is a great mix. You know, I will survive perhaps is a, an early example of that. Even Pet Shop Boys, you know, about always on my mind is sort of the same sort of thing. A little respect by Erasure is a very downbeat message in a very upbeat pop song. So I think it's got that going for it. I do like a sad banger and the concept of a sad banger. But for me, this is just, I mean, it was massive. It was the 10th biggest song in the world in 2019. Um, so, you know, you say the one point, whatever, billion streams and stuff. It was a massive hit, but it's neither a floor filler nor a, I don't know, nor a ballad. It's a sort of that in-between, very now production, you know. And, and it's a shame because I love a lot of the female pop music that's around. I really love it. I think it's. I think it, a lot of it is great, but for me, not this one. Halsey was completely off my radar. It was a name I knew, but I'd never knowingly heard anything she'd done. So before I actually played uh, without me for the first time, I looked up the lyrics, and then after I looked up the lyrics, I did a bit of um, googling around to find out about the song, and I discovered, you know, it's it is directed at her actual ex after she was, of uh, the quote, after she was cheated in front of the entire world, like a billion times, she said, it's the most raw thing I've ever made. Here, I have this record where it's just me, no character. It's about my life and my relationship that the world has watched so closely. It's just me. So armed with that info and the lyrics of the song, I was genuinely expecting some kind of scathingly furious breakup song delivered with like this withering passion. Maybe like something Pink might have done. However, I just don't hear the passion in Halsey's vocal performance at all. All I hear is this pretty auto-tuned, characterless, squeaky, pop pixie kind of mithering away a bit. And having heard it, I don't understand why she's had all this success as a featured artist. I mean, her solo career has slid since then. Um, her recent album very much underperformed, but she keeps getting invited back as a featured artist. And like, if you've just written a track and you want a guest singer, why would you call Halsey? The only explanation I can find is she had a number one global smash, the Chainsmokers, and they just think the magic's going to rub off on them as well. I was trying to think about other big hits which were angry breakup songs that were written and performed by the women who sung them. And that rules out I Will Survive for a start. And I, I struggled. And if you either of you can think of any, I'd be very interested. There's one recently called I Hope She Cheats. And unfortunately, I can't remember who it's by. I mean, I say recently. It's come to me recently. It, it could be five years old. But if you like a great breakup song, I urge you to like write down, I hope she cheats and go and find that because that's a really good song. Um, and Gail uh, did A, B, C, D, E, F, U. Oh, yeah. And she oh, she wrote yeah. that herself, didn't she? That's a good. There's a lot of those uh, songs recently and, and some of them are fantastic. And that was, that was what I was hoping this would be. And it's not. Exactly. That's the, that is the very point I was going to make. I thought, 
maybe this song was such a massive international success, number one in the States, because it was breaking new territory. This was an angry breakup song written by a woman, performed by a woman. We hadn't had that before. There was always an element before about being a little sort of doormat or heartbroken or a victim. And, and this wasn't like that. <laughs> then I realised that number one in this very same top 10 that we're looking at was uh, Thank You Next by Ariana Grande, which is an <laughs> angry breakup song and does a way better job of doing it as well. So it rather kicks that theory into touch. Well, you talked about Pink a minute ago. There's Blow Me One Last Kiss, which is uh, an absolute banger, which is probably in the same category. There's I Love You, I Hate You, that Ganache song, which was a top 10 hit a few years ago as well. But yeah. Who did Good For You uh, again relatively recently? Oh, Olivia Rodrigo. Her entire album is angry breakup yeah. songs. The yeah. entire album. <laughs> yeah. And, they're, and they're, they're well done. Um, I mean, Good For You was essentially just a Paramore song with different words. But... It's still well made. When you're talking about female singers, I, I wish I could come up with a better term than those songs have got balls. And yeah, yeah. this song doesn't. It's just teethless. And I, I do think this could be a better song. I don't think lyrically it's particularly bad. I don't think the vocal performance is particularly bad. I think this comes down to the producer. You know, the, the track that she did with Calvin Harris is a really, really good song. Calvin Harris knows what he's doing. This just feels like tapping contemporary production. Uh, I, I think this could have been much better. I mean, you know, it made number two, but as we've already discovered, number two is nowhere. Yeah, and some of us have used the term forgettable before now. This one, for me, is forgettable in that I mentioned I've been earworming Brother Beyond. Well, actually, I, when we moved on to Girls Aloud, I was earworming Girls Aloud. We got on to Halsey. Nothing is going round inside my head. Despite having played it goodness knows how many times, it just will not stick in my head. So I think forgettable can be an overused word, but I think it applies in this case. So there is a lot of great pop music around, and I don't want this to sound like three middle-aged guys going, music today is terrible, because I think there is an incredible... It's just such a shame that it is this specific track, because I think if you picked almost anything else, you know, uh, even other Halsey stuff, we'd be much more positive about this than we are rather than just oh no it's modern it's terrible i think i agree with everything you said about the production it is entirely forgettable but it is just such a shame because had it been one of a countless hundreds of other hits we'd be saying how great it is if people stick with us though over the years over the coming 27 years that we do this uh, podcast or however long it takes that'll come out in the wash well it, you know that's why it's going to be a long percolation of the years because it's not just one week is it i have enough people going oh yeah but the 80s was better wasn't it just because it was and the reason that it was is because that's when they grew up i really like a great deal of modern pop music it's kind of because i listen to so much of it that makes me write this song off because it is so if if modern pop production was a genre this is generic yeah you know what i mean i really think this could be a better song uh, I think they could have done this in the studio so much better because she's she's definitely got something about her, you know, without a doubt. As you say, people keep inviting her back. Um, you know, she's a bona fide star. Not from this, though, for me. I think all three of us, it's fair to say, are basically itching to rep for the 2010s. But with Union J last time and Halsey this time, the 2010s moment for us has not yet come. You, the listeners, may feel differently. Shall we move on to the voting section then? 
Trev, I'll start with you. I want your first, second, third favourite and your uh, most bad and hated, or at least your least favourite. So because one of the criteria that I judge things on is whether or not I would discuss the song with Musos, I am cringing to tell you what I've got in first and second place because I am putting Girls Aloud ahead of Hendrix. I really think it's a great pop record. I, I'm, That's not to take anything away from Jimi Hendrix. That's a great song. It was very, very close. I struggled. But the fact that, you know, this made this track made me think again about Girls Aloud back catalogue. Whereas my opinion about Hendrix hasn't changed from knowing this. Yeah, it's a great song. But this one, as a Girls Aloud tune, stands out. I mean, I think, you know, this it's one of Hendrix's best. But how do you draw the line between, you know, his his sort of great sticks? Whereas I think that's that's definitely my favourite Girls Aloud tune. And that's not to say they've not got a great body of work. But yeah, I'm cringing. I don't want Musos coming up and going, you what? But it is Girls Aloud first, Hendrix second. Uh, and then third, I've, I'm going with Touch and Go because I think it's a really good pop record. It's a simple idea. It's bordering on a novelty record, but there's nothing wrong with that. Some novelty records are just great tunes anyway. So it's almost a bit mambo number five is Touch and Go. You know, where would you put it in a genre? I don't know. Who cares? It's just a good, fun song. Two and a half minutes done. Most hated. I'm giving Halsey the benefit of the doubt here. I was torn. I don't hate either of these particularly, but I was torn between Halsey and Brother Beyond. And I'm going with Brother Beyond simply because I've had 30 years to get used to Brother Beyond and Halsey's a lot more recent. I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt. In 30 years' time, I might feel a different way about it. It's too recent for me to have fully absorbed. I mean, you know, I don't remember hearing that Brother Beyond record before, but I'm absolutely sure I will have done. I was listening to an awful lot of pop music back then and it didn't go in. Uh, the Halsey record or Halsey, that hadn't gone in for me at all. It's still not going. I don't know that it ever will. I highly doubt in 20 years' time, 30 years' time, I'll be going, do you know what? I was wrong there, but that's the benefit of the doubt. So, yeah, sorry, Brother Beyond. Okay, then, Nick, your votes, please. Okay, um, I think it's a great week. Honestly, a really good, strong week. So it's it's difficult. I don't hate any of these, so I actually would quite happily listen to pretty much any of these. Um, Number one, just uh, unsurprisingly, I am going to go for Brother Beyond. I just absolutely love that track. Second, I'm with... Trev, Girls Aloud, please. It sounds, I mean, you know, you think putting Girls Aloud ahead of Hendrix is bad. I've just put Brother Beyond ahead of Jimi Hendrix. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably the only person on the globe other than Nathan Moore for whom that would be true. Third place, I will go for All Along the Watchtower. I think it's absolutely great. And most bad and hated for the similar reason to Trev, but a different song I would like to choose. Um, would you go on the one show with me? Not a fan. Well, I will give you my votes, and I've just been totting up the totals. So my first place has got to go to Jimi Hendrix. I'm glad someone did that. I really am. I'm too young to be a boomer, but the boomer shadow looms large over my musical life. And it's it's just fantastic. Everything about it, the musicianship, the guitar playing, the emotion, the, yeah, the poetry of it makes it my number one. My number two and number three have changed um, in the latter part of today, because I was going to make Touch and Go my number two, but I'm not going to make it my number two. Having seen the video, um, and also thinking about Girls Aloud as we've been discussing it, I think Girls Aloud, The Promise, does deserve my second place vote. So two points for them. Touch and Go, lot of fun, worthy third. Brother Beyond got unlucky. I think Brother Beyond is all right. Halsey, 
I have no feelings about one way or the other. My most bad and hated is going to Frankie Miller because I just find it such a grim, cynical, let's do a bit of Rod Stewart and give us a hit. We'll just do some plopping bass line and rubbish rhymes that we haven't thought about. That gets, that gets my most bad and hated. Right. In last position with minus one points, currently Frankie Miller fifth position with zero points having picked up no votes from anybody whatsoever is Halsey fourth position with one point only because we had a cancellation out so one point touch and go where are we now third position is Brother Beyond and then there's a massive leap just pipped to the post in second position Jimi Hendrix one point ahead and our current leaders girls allowed This is where we throw the votes open to you, our listeners. I'll just recap on how you can vote. There are links on how you can vote in the show info attached to this broadcast. You can send us an email. You can at us on Twitter. You can leave a comment on Facebook. Um, If you really aren't going to read the show info, Facebook search for Which Decade is Tops and Pops. Twitter, at Which Decade Tops. Email which decade is tops at gmail.com. I should have aimed for consistency when setting those up, but never mind. First, second and third favourites, least favourite. You've got to do all of that for your vote to count. Please add some comments. Tell us what you think, and we may read the best ones out at the beginning of the next show. You have until 6pm UK time on Wednesday, November the 30th, 2022, to get your votes in, and we will see what result democracy delivers us next time. All that remains for me to do is to thank Trev. Thank Nick. Thank you. Thank you for listening. See you next time.